Hey, hey, this is another edition of Killinois with Bird and Cam. This is Bird, and as always with me, Cam. Cam, how we doing, my dear? Totally freaking out. Game of Thrones just happened. Yeah, yeah. So if you guys are listening to this, number one, first huh. of all, to all the mothers there, happy Mother's Day, I hope. You That's know. right. Happy Mother's Day. I, I love you, you all. I hope you and your OGs, if or if you are an OG, I hope this day was very splendid and lovely. Um, but that said, yeah, I, I watched Game of, Thrones, Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, and like, man, Damn. she killed all Damn. those women and children because- Don't say it, don't say it, oh, oh. to anybody who didn't watch it, or oh. just ruined it. Well, hey, okay, yeah, spoiler alert after the fact. Everyone dies. All because Everybody she, dies. All because she couldn't get the D. No, it well, well, I look, and that's the thing. This is only the third episode I've only seen. So, oh, ever? Yeah. Boy, you gotta start from the beginning. <laughs> Everybody, you are that. missing the whole concept. <laughs> but you um, start. She's had the D. She's like, I got it already. I'm over it. And it's her now I want that throne. Uh, uh, but um, again, guys, thank you so much for listening. And not only is this going to be on SoundCloud, but for now on, this will be on Stitcher. And iTunes, so yay! yay! And uh, again, guys, thank you so much. And what you can do is, especially on iTunes, rate this, uh, f- hopefully a five star, and subscribe. And uh, you can find us, and we'll provide the link on our Facebook page. Um, again, and also, to don't kill us for our first couple episodes, we had to learn. So now that we know our ish, yeah, give yeah. us five stars because <laughs> we came in the game not knowing what the fuck to do and hell like i said we still have a lot a lot of ways to being the best podcast that we know we can be so um again grow with us and again guys if you are listening if you are you've been listening since day one again thank you so much we can't do this without you um this is a team you know as they say teamwork makes the dream work so again guys thank you so much um, this is a part two. We've been doing a lot of uh, two-parters lately, but um, this is part two of the Browns Chicken Massacre. And um, if you guys have listened to part one, obviously, if you guys are listening and binging it right now and just listen to it like five minutes ago and it's now just, it's like Back to the Future, some shit like that. <laughs> but again, just do a quick recap. Oh. Before we do a recap, Cam, could you hit the good folks with a disclaimer? Of course, per usual, everyone, we're just here to report, um, you know, report the information we find. Um, so if any of this information seems accurate or it offends you, um, let us know. You know, we find this information through various sources, such as news articles, police reports, internet searches, things like that. So let us know if there's something you don't agree with. Um, something's incorrect. Um, Killinois with Bird and Cam on Facebook is the best way to hit us up with. Um, yeah, and too, if there's anything that, you know, makes you nervous or if you have any traumatic life situations, um, please call your, you know, your local crisis hotline, um, which will be presented in our, you know, show notes and all that shit. So, yeah, we're just here to do the damn thing, so. Yeah. That said, oh, you just just took the right <laughs> away. I see what I did there. You mother, you stupid motherfucker, you. You fucker. <laughs> you fucking idiot. <laughs> oh, man. But that said, let's just dive in and do the damn thing. Again, 
And again, we're talking about the Browns' chicken massacre. Now, just to get quick recap, on January 8th, 1993, a robber, or maybe two, hmm, we'll get into that later on, robbed and murdered seven employees in the Browns' chicken, uh, Browns chicken and pasta in Palatine, Illinois, the southwest suburb of Chicago, Illinois. The victims included the owners, Richard and Lynn Ellenfeld, and five employees, Guadalupe Malando, Michael C. Castro, Rico Solis, Thomas Minns, and Marcus Nielsen. And the assailant stole less than 2000 from the restaurant that was found in the safe box. Well, it wasn't a safe box. It was actually $1,900. And two of the Ellen Felt's daughters were actually scheduled to be in the restaurant that night, but happened not to be present at the time of the killing. That's something we didn't uh, talk about really at part one. So you really, and we really talked a lot about, you know, uh, survivor's guilt, but like that's just a a really double whammy of sorts. It's one of those weird blessings in disguise. I knew um, my neighbor's father was supposed to be on the plane that hit the World Trade Centers, and that morning they're like, "Oh, you got to go somewhere else." And it's mm-hmm. just it, it's weird. Those what 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 the stars have for you know, certain people like that. But right. just like that, this whole murder investigation actually went back to square one. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, it goes cold. So we get into 1997. And at this point, four years have passed since the murders. And the investigation appears to be pretty much at a dead end until suddenly Palatine police think they might catch a break. But Paul Reed, a career criminal goes on a crime scene that seemingly fits the aota of the Browns Chicken Massacre on the morning of February 16, 1997. Reed entered Captain D's restaurant in Donaldson, Tennessee, under the pretense of applying for a job. Once he was inside, he forced the employee, Sarah Jackson, who was only 16, and the manager, Steve Hampton, who was 25, into the restaurant's cooler. Reed then forced the two to lie face down on the floor. He then shot them execution style. Money, including large amounts of change, were found missing from the cash register. And just a month later, on March 23, 1997, Reed approached four employees as they exited McDonald's after closing. And at gunpoint, he forced them back in the restaurant. He shot three employees to death execution style in the storeroom. Andrea Brown, who was only 17, Ronald Santiago, who was 27, and Robert Ace, was it Sewell, who was 23. Reed actually attempted to shoot Jose Antonio Ramirez Gonzalez, but his weapon ended up failing. So what Reed did instead was stab Gonzalez 17 times and left him for dead. Gonzalez avoided further attacks by lying completely still and pretending to be dead, which pretty much ultimately saved his life. Mm. Reed then took $3,000 from the cash registers and fled. So, so that said, I'm about to cut you off. So, this again, this really fits. Uh, he's got, he's a psychopath. If, yeah. if this is the individual who did this killing, this it's, is crazy. This it, is terrifying. Sound, it sounds so eerily similar to, again, we talk more in detail on part one about how the killings occurred or how they were found, and it's the brutality of it. So, yeah, not only they got shot, they got stabbed, and they took a lot of money, like, yeah. And we have to remember, too, you know, again, you and I are so used to this, these type of crimes, we've been desensitized, but 
back in 1993, 97, this was, this was all new. This was all, mm-hmm. people were in shock. People were, were scared. They were fearing. Excellent. And, excellent point. And just as quickly at that scene where Go, uh, Gonzalez was, he was quickly taken to a hospital, treated, and as stated earlier, he survived. And thank God he was able to testify against Reed. At Baskin-Robbins on Wilma Rudolph Boulevard in Clarksville, Tennessee, on the evening of April 23, 1997, Reed again went to the door after closing and persuaded the employees to let him inside. Once inside, Reed kidnapped Angela Holmes, 21, Michelle May, 16, and forced the two to Dunbar K State Park. Unfortunately, their bodies were discovered the next day at the park. Their throats were actually slashed. So here we have a serial killer on the loose who's doing crazy crimes. So he's shooting, he's stabbing, he's slashing throats. And it wasn't long until police were able to actually apprehend him. And so as this turned into nationwide news, Palestine police think they actually have their man, even though Nashville, Tennessee is about a seven-hour drive away. They begin to question Reed, but Eventually, it turned out they were unable to link him near the Palatine area on January 8, 1993. So basically, Reed would become a list of a litany of suspects who police would zero in, and just as quickly as they would think that they had their guy, evidence and accounts from eyewitnesses or of the like would rule out the suspects. And we do talk again, you can find on part one, we do talk about the suspects that within days of the murder that the Palatine police had questioned and they thought they were the perpetrator. And then for whatever reason, well, DNA would let it prove, rule them out. So from there, the case takes another nosedive. So we get to 1999, Cam, and this is now what, six years. This is pretty much, it's not even pretty much. This is a cold case. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just like you you have just, you think, okay, s- these murders and the way it happened and you have evidence of the like and you have these suspects and you think, oh my God, we finally have these people. And it was like, again, it was so fast that they had these guys and then... Poof, especially in the case of the first two suspects. And then four years later with uh, Reed, you think, okay, finally we have closure. And then, no, it's just, it's agony. It, it really is. It, it, I, mean, I find it, and it's crazy too, because again, we we have so many shows on TV nowadays where it's like, oh, this crime can be solved in an hour mm-hmm. when in reality it takes years and years for a yeah. crime to be solved. And, you know, sometimes you're lucky and, you know, the, the victim at the scene is alive, there's evidence, but that's not the case for here. Mm-hmm. Or so we think. Dun, mm. dun, dun. <sighs> so again, we get back to 1999. And at this point, the number of people working on this case, once about a hundred during the early weeks of the investigation, is down to four full-time officers and one part-time FBI computer analysis. And later, later after that, an important development happens. While not a breakthrough in a case per se, 
DNA was coming along in technological advancements, and tests were done that year to analyze DNA from saliva on a partially eating dinner at the crime scene. Now, it didn't match that of any of the victims, employees, or any former suspects that they had vetted out. And that year, a report from the Illinois State Crime Commission said police did everything they could to investigate the case properly. And this came after police caught a lot of shit for, number one, their handling of the case, and number two, the fact that it was unsolved. And by that time, as seen from the aforementioned interview that we talked about in part one from the victim's families, you can sense that level of frustration is just over 9,000! I had to get that Dragon Ball Z reference in, but... As Evelyn Regina, the mother of Rico Solis, would say, to be honest, they mishandled the case in the beginning, and all the families were curious, saying, what's happening? And Joy Elvenfelt, the daughter of the owners, uh, Richard and Lynn Elvenfelt, had added, we didn't have any information at that point than we did at the time of the murders. And so you can only un- understand how frustrating this is. Yeah. And so, in 2001, the vacant restaurant building where the murders occurred was demolished. And today, I believe there's a Chase Bank building that stands on where uh, used to be Brown's Chicken and Pasta. So that said, let's just talk about the impact that this has had on Brown's. The incident had an adverse effect on the entire franchise. Sales at all restaurants dropped 35% within months of the incident. And the company eventually had to close 100 restaurants in the Chicago area. By 2009, an interview with Chicago uh, Sun-Times, Frank Portillo said, it honestly scared people. They just stopped coming. Even today, people tell me they've never been back to Brown's since the tragedy. And get this, another fucking murder happened at Brown's. Mm. On top of that, it was a mobster, Anthony Cheramonti. And that took place at Brown's Chicken in West Suburban Lions in 2001. So that was on Thanksgiving of all the days. And these places were pretty much built on fucking area Indian burial grounds, it seems like. Because it, yeah. these Brown's Chickens are just, their reputation is destroyed. Yeah. So we fast forward to March 25th, 2002. A full nine years and two wow. months after these murders occurred, and finally, police get the break that they've been waiting for. Ann Lockett, who was a former Palatine resident in 19, by 1993, had called the Palatine Police Department and made a huge claim that her ex-boyfriend, James Dorosky, and his friend Juan Luna committed the Browns chicken and pasta murders. According to Lockett, Dorosky asked her if she wanted to know what happened at Browns. She said yes. Dorosky and Luna ran it down in great detail. They talked a long time, she remembered. The player plant the pair had planned a crime for weeks, and what had once been a all-out robbery had morphed into just this premeditated idea to murder. The two stuffed their pockets with bullets to repeatedly reload into Dorosky's 38 caliber revolver. They walked across Brown's snow covered park lot strangely, not in their own gate, Lockett recalled. Apparently to throw off investigators. And finally, before they entered the store, they allegedly wedged the back door shut so the victims could not escape. So that explains why the back door was originally unlocked that we get talked about in part one. So 
With Luna and Dorosky donning latex gloves and trading off the revolver, they got five victims into one cooler, two in the other, and shot each of them repeatedly. Lockett would go on to say that Luna then reenacted how he held Lynn Elvenfeld around her neck and slashed her throat with a knife. Police asked Lockett why did she keep this story out for years, and she simply said out of fear, alluding to what Dorosky had told her after telling all this, saying, if you tell anyone, we will kill you. Hmm. But see, I'm hoping she was not hoping, actually, because I hope she never stayed with this guy, but mm-hmm. she wasn't with him for the nine years. I don't know why right. she didn't say something. But, but get this, see. get this, as it, it, I'm about to cut off, but it turns out that this wasn't the first time, actually, that Lockett had gone to police. So, um... It's going to, and God, this is something that you guys can, like, you know, judge for yourself, but it goes to what the victim's families had thought, okay, the police had mishandled or whatnot, but it, 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 this is where it really leads to a lot of gray, as opposed to black and white in terms of these investigations. Mm-hmm. I can see it being frustrating, especially, too, because... I don't know, and we'll go into detail about, you know, all this, but for police officers, we don't know how many tips were filing in, pouring in at that time of the murder. Mm -hmm. So if they had thousands of tips they had to go through, I can see them overlooking it, which I still don't think is an excuse because she's tried prior and this is... You know, you shouldn't overlook something that is this important, especially if it is a random caller. It's your job not to. But yes, anyways, we'll go into this. Sorry, guys. (laughs) But anyways, according to 2002 Chicago Tribune story, not long after the murders, Lockett actually told prosecutors that Degrowski had her accompany Luna when the Palatine Task Force called him in to discuss the case. She actually sat outside as Luna dressed nicely at Degorski's urging, in black pants and a trench coat, spoke to the investigators. And Luna, who had worked for about, or I'm sorry, who worked for the store's previous owners, was one of the 300 current or former Browns workers police interviewed. He actually suggested that the investigators call another female acquaintance of Degorski, who could vouch for his whereabouts the night of the slayings. And they did. And just like that, they seemed to be satisfied. Excuse me, satisfied. So the next day, the woman told the investigators she helped Degorski clean up the car. And he gave her 50 bucks from roughly $1,900 stolen from the restaurant. So then the two went shopping, and she spent it on shoes. In statements to investigators, Degorski actually allegedly said he wrapped the gun used in the crime in a canvas bag and threw it into the Fox River. Authorities actually said he admitted his role in the slayings, but refused to continue partway through a videotaped confession. So Degorski, Luna, and the two women kept the secret secret for years. So what they didn't count on, though, however, was an actual breakthrough in the DNA science that allowed investigators to actually connect Luna to the crime scene through saliva that he apparently left on a chicken bone. Degorski apparently had the sense that the chicken dinner could be their undoing, according to one of the women informants. 
she said that Degorski had uh, chasséed Luna from getting his hands on the greasy meal, fearing it could actually leave fingerprints. But police actually never isolated such prints. But they were able to preserve the remains of the chicken dinner that was just tossed in the garbage can in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And at the time of the slayings, scientists couldn't extract enough DNA from the trace amount, um, such as saliva. But since then, refined techniques allowed Illinois State Police Crime Lab experts to do so. So although it took nine, uh, nine to ten years, it's kind of a blessing in disguise it did because they were able to get these people. Mm-hmm. So on May 9th, authorities were able to cor- uh, corroborate one of the witness disclosures by matching DNA from the chicken bone to a saliva swab taken from Luna's mouth in mid-April. So everybody praised Lockett as a hero. Not only did she have the courage to come forward despite a threat on her life, he said, but she also called Degorski in Indiana, allowing investigators to tap the conversation on Wednesday night. She told Degorski investigators wanted to talk to her, and the two spoke for about 45 minutes. So the only thing that was discussed was the cover story she was to give to the police. And that's what the prosecutor started to say. And during that conversation, Degorski made absolutely no denial that he was involved. Not everyone actually shared the view of the informants acted heroically. Joyce uh, should Judy, the Elfen's young, or Ellen Felt's youngest daughter, said she was in shock when she finally got the phone call telling her that the suspects were in custody. But that feeling quickly turned to revulsion when she learned that the two people had known about the crime for years, yet said nothing to the police. And she said, it's repulsive to me, and it's unconscionable that they haven't done it for nine years. Mm -hmm. She said that the second informant, another female acquaintance of Degorski, did not come forward to law enforcement. Because of her friendship with him. Mm, so, yeah, it's just a lot of to unpack from there. But number one, um, when they said in 2000, the, what was it, the department had said that they had tested 300 different people, including the victims, including suspects, and even including uh, employees, and they eventually ruled it out. And I was always confused. Now, I guess, you know, DNA technology can just advance within two years or... So, it's awesome to see how yeah. quickly it advanced. I was, yeah, I was always confused. It's like, if that's the case, then they would have probably found Luna the right then and there and have him dead to rights. But, again, I, I'm glad that you kind of elaborate that and say, yeah. But that said, um, yeah, let's try to unpack that even more with the informants or the two women in this whole ordeal like you... i find it interesting that their reason they didn't say anything is they were friends mm-hmm. i'm sorry you killed people you killed a lot of people not for your safety out of your protection for money mm-hmm. but like you i i don't know whether to categorize them as you know, well, grateful that they, you know, the, um, that Ann Lockett had, you know, actually stepped forward and said it, but it, it leaves a lot, it's a lot more questions and our answers as to why, yes, she said that she feared for her life, and I mean, you know, these guys killed seven people, 
would they wouldn't think twice to killing me. But again, you have nine years and you move away. And then when you add this little wrinkle that, oh, they helped, you know, covered up the crime scene. They ha- they got paid for it. And then one of the uh, witnesses was actually friends from all this time after the fact. It, yeah. You can, you can, you can understand, you can understand the outrage by the victim's family saying, why did you wait all this time? Especially when you had the means to, even when you moved in the case of Ann Lockett, like it took nine years. I'd feel the same way. I'd be furious, especially too, because she didn't marry one of the men. She wasn't held captive by these men for nine years. She was a friend. Uh Uh-huh. That was it. She was able to leave their house, go home, go to bed, wake up the next day, be fine for nine years. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, honestly, I don't know if the DNA would have eventually solved this crime mm-hmm. or if she was actually a big helper. Right. Not. Yeah, and I guess, I think this is one of those things is that the, that's a great question because if they already ruled out you know, these employees, or they said that they couldn't find anything, I don't know if they would just, let's say, 10, 15 years after the fact, let's just do it one more time. If it's still cold and nothing can do it, maybe they find a match. Um, But I thought they, like, mentioned that they took swabs of all the employees. uh Yeah, and that's the case. Like, why wasn't Luna, like, again, if DNA wasn't that advanced in 2000 as opposed to two years after the fact, Maybe that's the only thing I can come up with. Yeah, that's and maybe at that time, because it's not the the part of Luna actually getting the swab for the DNA. It's the mm-hmm. DNA on the chicken. So I bet you in early two thousand, if let, let's say I took a bite of chicken, they'd find my saliva all over the place. I have so much saliva in my mouth. Right. But like, I bet you. They didn't even consider looking into the bone because mm. it was still so new. Yeah. Or maybe they didn't know they could compare a smaller amount of the DNA. Yeah. I, I, and I'll say this. If if they if this guy just took the fucking chicken with him, we probably wouldn't be sitting here tonight talking about this. I find it weird that, quote unquote, Degorski was so concerned about fingerprints. I mean... Mm-hmm. I guess it's just, again, science has evolved so much that, like, it's hard for me to believe that people didn't know what DNA was. Right. Because when, back in those back in those days, um, you can really, the I say in replacement of DNA, before, uh, before DNA, you would find blood evidence, and it really wouldn't match that person. It would match whether they had, say... Uh, a, a type of blood, you know, A or whatever. Yeah, or if they're a male or a female. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it wasn't as concrete or... You yeah. Know. And so, it, uh... It's just fascinating. And, like, I know back then, like, people probably were... I, I see why people believed all these crazy, you know, medical concepts that people believe today. Mm-hmm. You know, science has proven those wrong, but... Come on, guys. Let's all get to the 21st. I'm glad that, you know, the the chicken is what it was. Right. So um, a lot of people were really up in arms and divided on these on, on the testimonies of these women. 
and they asked they asked the prosecutor to state up were they going to get prosecuted and the prosecutor state said we needed all the witnesses we can in this case and even if they pursue charges it would have probably boiled down to statute of limitations so again it's just hmm now, interesting. Yeah, it really is. Really is. So that said, yeah, on May 16, 2002, Juan Luna and James Dragorski were both arrested. Uh, again, months earlier, Dragorski's former girlfriend, Ann Lockett, had what we've been talking about the last five or so minutes, it came forward with those allegations against the two men. And after hours of questioning, Luna gave a videotape statement to Assistant, Turn- Assistant State's Attorney Darren O'Brien, Investigator Brian Kalaki. And in it, he describes the horrors of January 8th, 1993. And he said that he picked the restaurant because he had worked there and knew that there were no alarms or weapons. Luna would say that, I figured it would be simple he also goes on to say that him and Dugorski went into the restaurant about 9 p.m. closing time because they figured there would be fewer people inside. His job, he said, was to make sure that no one ran out of the doors. Dugorski's role was to act as the aggressive one. Luna later goes on to say that after he ate a chicken dinner in the restaurant, he dumped the remains, donned latex gloves, walked toward the counter and heard Dugorski say, okay, let's do it. Luna allegedly was following one worker towards the back of the restaurant when he heard a gunshot near the front counter. He said that he saw Dugorski shoot an employee who attempted to jump over the counter. The men allegedly started rounding up male employees and putting them into two refrigeration units. Luna had Lynn Eldenfeld open a safe, then ordered her into the freezer. When she hesitated, he slit her throat with a hunting knife Dugorski had given him. With everything going all wild and crazy, he would say, I guess I got caught up in the moment and I cut her throat. He goes on to say that Gorski told him to shoot into a freezer, but added that he fired only one shot without aiming. I wasn't really aiming for anyone to get shot or anything like that, just to scare them because I didn't want to hurt anybody no more, he said. They were yelling, don't shoot us, please don't shoot us. Their hands were shaking. He said that Gorski took the gun back and began firing. At the close of the video... Luna's voice had shivered and he rubbed his face with his hand and apologized. I feel so sad and I'm so sorry. And if I can do all of this again, there's no way in hell I'd do this at all. Hmm. So on May 10th, 2007, Juan Luna was found guilty of all seven counts of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole on May 17th. The state had sought the death penalty, which at the time was available. But unfortunately, the jury's vote of 11 to 1 in favor of the death penalty fell short of the required unanimous unanimous to impose it. And and that's kind of like interesting because, again, at this point, obviously what we talked about um, a couple episodes ago about the death penalty and, you know, at this point, Illinois was all but going to abolish it at that time. So it's kind of interesting that the state was really looking to, you know, to throw the whole book at him. I think he he and James deserved it because Uh if the one lady 
Lockett didn't come forward, mm-hmm. eventually they'd be walking free without a care in the world. The reason right. why he cares is he got caught. That's it. Yeah. That's it. They they premeditated it. They decided what they wanted to do. They knew they were going to do it, and they followed through with it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what frustrates me. And um, it from what we report, it sounds like Degorski was the mastermind. But right, yeah. And that's I said, that that said, what would you? Th- how would you kind of analyze what Luna has said in his confession video? I it's hard to say Degorski is the mastermind when. Luna's the one who worked there. Luna's the one who knew he didn't, there was no protection or anything. Luna knew what to do, you know, with the exit and everything. So how could he not have a bigger say in what happened? Mm. He's the one who knew when to go in at nine, nine o'clock at night, because there weren't going to be a lot of people there. And I don't care that he says that he just, oh, I didn't want to shoot anybody. Yes, you did. You just slit someone's throat. What would stop you from Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's just to say, okay, I got lost. I I, I got lost in the moment, but then oh, I had a coming to Jesus, and I'm not going to slaughter all these other people. Like I, that kind of, it's kind of inconsistent to me. Exactly, and again, I think, I I think they both both shot up the place. I think they both, you know, I'm glad they both. you know, both got sentenced. I'm glad they both got, um, which I guess I should finish this off real quick. Um, two years later on September 29, James Degorski was actually found guilty also of all seven counts of murder. Um, and that's mostly because of the testimony of his former, former girlfriend, Ann Lockett and another woman who both stated Degorski had confessed to them. So on October 20th, 2009, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. All but two jurors had voted for the death penalty. I believe they both should have gotten the death penalty, and I believe both women mm-hmm. shouldn't go to jail. They should go to jail, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, they knew what they did, right. and they knew what they got from it, and they yeah. continued to do it. And, and this, is, this is my thing, and I guess if police uh, or uh, prosecutors said that they needed all the witnesses that they could get and i guess maybe from that circumstantial thing i mean circumstantial evidence uh aspect but if you already have luna dead to rights on the chicken and the chicken was uh, from the onset of the investigation the chicken was the key exactly his evidence was there they based off of that even without the witness's testimony. And I guess that just made it that much more of a slam dunk. I think you had great chances if you just had the DNA evidence alone and the fact that he was a former employee and that he knew... I he think knew that prosecutors would have been able to pick up those uh, notions pretty much quick. So, yeah, I think that... I, I, if it's It felt like a cop-out when they said that, oh... It's a statue of limitations. I think they was just so... You talk about nine years, and you need a sense of urgency to really... Okay, we finally have these people. After this, the first viable suspect we've had in five years, we need to get this in, by any means necessary. And they're willing to, you know, take anything that comes with the package with not so... 
uh, I won't say reliable, but not so, what the, the intentions of, maybe not Ann Luck, uh, Lockett, but the other uh, witness who just, for whatever reason, oh, because I'm friends with this guy, I'm not going to come forward. Like, <sighs> I don't know how I can handle my boyfriend coming and telling me that he murdered seven people. I need you to clean my car for me. I think you probably help him. <laughs> I think if Adam actually, yeah, be like, I'm gonna leave. No. Only it's only if pe- people I don't like that we murder. Come on, guys. Okay, okay. Not, not just random people. We have a list. Come on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Classic mix-up. Uh, talk about natural-born killers, Midwest edition. <laughs> but again, that look that is the Browns Chicken Massacre. And again, I would to say this. I said a, a few minutes ago. Um. This really, it, it really, the, the key takeaway I take from this is DNA is clutch as a motherfucker. Exactly. It, it's it really awesome is. how far we've come with that, mm-hmm. too, because it really is the prime example, the prime evidence you need to put people away. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... You know, again, it took nine years, and it was a lot slower than normal, but mm-hmm. it, we almost needed that nine years because then the DNA was out for them to really find who mm-hmm. these people were, and neither one of them felt remorse, so I don't I don't think either one of them Yeah, and it was very, very fascinating to see that, you know, this was still, again, this was still up for... The death penalty again. You had eleven of twelve in favor of the death penalty for Dagorski. The same for both of them. Uh, no, but uh, Dagorski was a ten to two for the death penalty, and Luna was eleven for one. And I mean, it would probably it w- it would be moot because now because of the fact that Illinois abolished the death penalty. But I mean, yeah, it's warranted. It, 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 it to me, it warrants warranted it. It's, it's interesting because, again, I'm very, you know, we, we've been talking about the death penalty versus, you know, not the death penalty. You mm-hmm. know, we'll be covering, you know, a couple um, episodes of people who were, you know, innocently convicted. Um, but for the ones that we know were at fault and did the crime premeditated with no remorse, such as this... Um, two-parter and the one before you deserve the death penalty you deserve to to burn in hell see it see it with the devil satan yeah so um yeah again that is the brown chicken massacre um we will be back well i'm thinking later on this week or yeah we'll definitely be back later on this week whatever permits and uh, we're going to be again, pumping up, uh, pumping out as many episodes as we can in time for our one year anniversary on June 12th, 2019, which yes! ironically falls. And I think we said this in a few episodes, uh, a few episodes before when well, I don't know what the fuck, but which ironically is anniversary of another uh, significant day. Wait, 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 wait. Before you say it, we should make a poll and see if anyone knows. Oh, yeah. 
We'll come back in our next episode. Well, with all the they have to do is just Google it. Like, what happened on June twelfth? Don't got... shut up. Okay. You're learning your followers. <laughs> Nobody listen to him. Don't Google it. Oh, I'm don't just, do it. I guess I'm just on a roll, right? <laughs> Game of don't thumbs. do it. Yes, have fun. Well, that said, um, we we will well we will be back later on this week. And if you want to find us on social media, you can find Cam on Instacam six thirty on. IG. You can find her on I Like Stuff 630 on the Twitter. You can find her on Facebook on Cam E. Wren. And you can find our group Facebook page on Killinois with Bird and Cam and IG with Killinois Podcast. Yes. Now you can find Birdman in a couple different places. You can find him on the IG at Bird underscore your underscore enthusiasm. You can find him on um Tweeter, the tweets for her, um, Birdman for America. Now I'll let you decide which four that is. And then finally, you can find him on the Book of Face under, you'll be surprised because it's not Birdman, it's under Alex Camp. So You sound so just sad about that. It sounded so... Really? Do I really? You you look so disgruntled. Like, it's just like, you, you can find him on Alex Camp, like... So, so I was telling. Okay, can I just tell you my story? Today? I was telling yeah. my mom, my mom's about like how you introduce yourself. I go, his name's Birdman Iceberg. But let me tell you how he introduced himself. His real name's Alex Camp. Hilarious, I know. Oh boy! <laughs> I always have to tell the story, and I go, yeah. And we were all in class, and all of a sudden the teacher goes, okay, like Alex Camp. He just dead on goes, Birdman Iceberg, and then goes, what? <laughs> and I go, and now we're all calling them Birdman Icebergs. So. Oh boy! You know we should probably just do like a cue. We'll just do like one of those like special episodes, especially when I'm in St. Louis, and we just get drunk and it's just just a bullshit episode. And I'll probably yes, talk about we just the... talk shit about something. Yes. Oh boy, yes. that that might be like yes. a Facebook Live from hell. Oh. <laughs> Yes. Okay, but again, guys, thank you so much. Um, you can also find us on top of SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher, and we will be providing the links on our social media networks. Again, thank you so much for Cam. This is Bird. This is Killinoy with Bird and Cam. Be there. Or be killed, bitches. <laughs> <laughs>